Welcome to episode three of Check the Program. I'm John Threlfall. I'm Amanda farrell Sarah Petrescu here. Melanie Trump-Hooper. So today we're going to talk more about uh, the arts and cultural scene in Victoria, what's going on, what we've seen, what's coming up, and what people are talking about. And uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging that Victoria occupies the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking and Coast Salish peoples, including what is now known as the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. As settler people, we have the privilege to live, work, and create on these lands, and much of the art we are discussing has also been created and performed here. Let's start off with reviews right at the top. We've all seen a bunch of stuff this week. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, you want to start? Sure, I'll start. Um, I went to see um, Pacific Opera Victoria's Rinaldo, um, pretty interesting opera uh, from the Baroque period, one of the earliest operas by Handel. It was wild. Wouldn't expect that for that period. (laughs) And a lot of it had to do with the aesthetic. It was presented as a steampunk, magical fantasy, which went incredibly well with the style of the music. Um, The music is, it has sort of what I call like a kind of a tinny feel. Like there's a lot of harpsichord in it, which is beautiful, but it, it it really puts you in a different era. And it's not necessarily something you'd you'd couple with like gothic sort of dark themes, but they did an incredible job of uh, of doing that. And also the um, the music in it is uh, sort of that bright coloratura style of singing. Uh, the two male leads um, were both countertenors, which is basically like a man soprano. And um, so it's a very man totally, which is. Totally, it's to, it's jarring, right? Because you don't see men sing in right. that way. But it's formidable. It's beautiful. It's you know incredible, um, incredible music, musicality, and and so that was really wonderful. The only thing with that is that to have the three main leads, um, the soprano and the two countertenors, all singing in that soprano style was kind of like whoa you know there wasn't a a lot of balance it wasn't a lot of balance yes so there's a you know one baritone voice but other than that it was more you know more of that style but they're so such incredible singers that it was it was uh it was impressive for sure is this an opera that people know you know like uh, la boheme you can hum melodies from la boheme Mm -hmm. You know, there's all sorts of operas out there that have gone into the greatest hits package. Do people know this one? I people didn't. know the music. Okay. They know the arias because they are like the wowers. Mm. Um, one of the main arias sung by the soprano, um, uh, what's her, Stephanie Lassard, who played Amarina, was is, uh, called Lascia Chiopianga. And it's one of the most beautiful, famous uh, soprano arias. And... Uh, and she sang it while being trapped in a queen spider web's um, cage. <laughs> and like this is this is I sang this aria when I was a teenager in music festivals. It's like the go-to. Are right? you gonna sing some now? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> Maybe after a few drinks. <laughs> and I was actually kind of not looking forward to this one because the last two that I've seen have been in the um, Pacific Opera Victoria space, that small right. center. And um, and they've been so intimate. And you're right in the middle of the cast. Like, you really hear the singers that I just thought, oh, I'm going to be set back from the stage. It won't be as engaging. But the set was just grabbed you. And they had some incredible little special effects that were so amazing, like um, a bed of roses flying down from the ceiling, like darts onto this you know, in onto a table and um, using sparkles 
as uh, water, oh, like water oh. jugs, and this incredible gown, almost like Maleficent gown, all with LED lights. I was so, going to ask about the costuming. Yeah, Their the costuming, costuming is incredible. Yeah, it was great. And it was one of the things I heard about the show was that um, friends had said their kids had gone because they have, you know, school kids will go and all the kids loved it. Oh. And it's long, oh. right? Like it's cool. So, yeah, so I was really impressed. And, um, mm-hmm. and there was a dragon. Spoiler. So it runs until the 29th yes. at the Royal. Excellent. What else you guys yeah, Melanie, you've seen a lot, been very busy. I've been to a few things lately, <laughs> yes. A uh, few weeks ago, I went to Dance Victoria's Ballet Hispanico. Mm-hmm. They brought in, as, as they do, uh, world class, amazing dance from all over the place. And this in particular was the Triple Bill featuring choreography from three Latina women. Uh, one from Colombia, one from Mexico, and a choreographer from Houston, Texas. And so it was three very different visions, of course, different styles, um, very passionate and uh, innovative contemporary interpretations of flamenco and of classical ballet, and then kind of a send-up of Mexican iconography that a lot of North American settler people are familiar with. And so it was three um told in three parts very much to to um, embrace all three of those visions split up um with intermissions and the part that really stuck out for me the most was the second act choreographer from houston texas michelle manzanales and she picked up threads from her childhood being uh latina uh, mexican american and that duality and and uh, juxtaposition of of leaning into what it means to be American and grow up in America, but still a lot of attachment, of course, to her Mexican heritage and pressure from her family of uh, living out living out those roots in this American context. And it was it was funny. There was some. Uh, incredibly humorous parts. They brought in audio from Cheech and Chan, and <laughs> and uh, there was this beautiful, very sensual um, interlude to Radiohead's Creep, and and uh, it was absolutely stunning, and and very much a coming of age tale. This one girl's journey through that piece, mm. the company and the choreography were amazing in in all three parts, and I was actually seated next to uh, teenage girls, so it was interesting to see them watch the watch that part, uh, in particular the the story of the young woman. And they, at the more central parts, of course, got the giggles. And I remember I was a teenage girl, so I I know exactly what that's like. But what that uh, really reminded me of is how, what a great job Dance Victoria does in diversifying their audience from an age perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And they've got one more show. Their season ender is coming up on Tuesday, May the 1st. It's one night only. It's Elvin Ailey's American Dance Theater, which is always a huge deal. Mm -hmm. And in this case... It's their only Canadian stop. Wow. So I, I think there are a few tickets left. How many dancers were in the companies? Was it uh, tend to be like solo dancers? Was it a bunch of dancers? It was a combination. That's yeah. a good, uh, good question. There was about 12, I'd say, all, all told. But the first piece was a lot more solo work. This one woman in this incredible flamenco gown. And her gown itself was, was a huge part of the piece, wrapping around all of the male dancers and whatnot. Um, I was also at World Play last night. Uh, Puente Theater's uh, Festival of Staged Readings. They do four each spring on Sunday nights. And it's such a nice way to almost have a little bedtime story read to you <laughs> at the end of your weekend. Because it is read, but there is some direction, uh, local emerging and, and established directors, and a little bit of lighting and sound design. Um, the piece that I got to see last night was Blink uh, by Phil Porter from Great Britain. And that's that's kind of the the point of the festival in the sense that it's bringing 
uh, new and, and well, for the most part, contemporary work from all over the world and, and um, having it read to a, a local audience. And the piece I saw was a two-hander um, directed by Pat Rendell, who I believe is from Kaleidoscope yeah, Theater. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, it was lovely. It was dark. A dark <laughs> little love story about two 18-year-olds. Um, but love story, but also one dealing with grief and loneliness and voyeurism. And and it didn't have a happy ending, which is my favorite kind of play. Um, <laughs> but it... it uh, was a great profile also for emerging artists. Jane Reese, who played one of the characters, Sophie, was was particularly, um, it was a particular stand-up because she really, even though she was reading a script very much so, she was connecting so well with the audience and, and uh, really, really made it meaningful, the content that she was working through. So it was great. There's still two more, uh, two more play readings at the Belfry uh, on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. and admission is by donation. So again, it's one of those really accessible um, works to get to. Uh, this coming Sunday on April 29th, it's Scorch, which is a Northern Irish play by Stacey Gregg. Um, and it's uh, another love story of first love through the eyes of a gender-curious teen. And then um, the festival closes out with Metamorphoses. So speaking of the Belfry, Salt Baby opened this week. Oh, that's right, yes. And John, you were you were there as well? Or we're both there. How, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, I you know, um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's a good play. I liked what it had to say, I think, more than how it said it. Um, I did enjoy the cast. Uh, I enjoyed the script. It, it was just, it took a while to get going. I found it took a while to get going. It seemed like the longest short show I'd seen in a while. Because it's a 95-minute, no-intermission play. Which you think, okay, boom, let's go. But it really took a while to mm-hmm. find its feet. Like it was What's probably, the premise? Uh, so, Salt Baby, uh, she's uh, the main character. Uh, she's from the Ganesataki Reservation. She's Mohawk raised. Uh, and then she's living in the city now, but she can pass as white because of her mixed mm. parentage. So the whole setup for the show is that uh, we meet her at a bar where she's on a date with a, a white guy. And then the show just goes from there. And he gets off on the wrong foot by not say, knowing that she's indigenous. And it's kind of awkward. And that's sort of the premise for the whole whole show mm-hmm. is about the stereotypes and the misperceptions that the white community has towards indigenous people well, i would mm-hmm. say for the most part it works quite well some of the some of the sequences are very funny some of them mm-hmm. are very touching some of them are very insightful yeah. um we see it from both uh, both sides we see a lot from salt baby's perspective we see a lot from the white perspective as well mm-hmm. and then we get these little scenarios that you'd find in any sort of meet cute dating romance play where they meet each other's parents and you know how mm-hmm. that goes and yeah, I thought it had really interesting um, thoughts to share around shadism, um, similar actually to what I was saying about Dance Victorian, that dichotomy of of um, being biracial or, or being in two places at once. And, and it was really an exploration of Indigenous identity and who, what that means in a modern context and who decides that mm. and how stations about reconciliation and and whatnot now. And so in parts, uh, to John's point, especially where he said it took a little bit to get going, there's a lot of context setting um, for the uninitiated, I would say, in the sense that it gets into the weeds a little bit around the Indian Act and some of the legislative uh, pieces that exist that have set the context for why Salt Baby is on this really, truly genetic uh, discovery of trying to figure out her roots. So there was a there was some clunky dialogue, I guess, a bit expository in places, but 
it's a I believe it's been a touring show and that makes yeah. makes sense mm-hmm. for for people that may not have all that. You context. know, and I kind of felt that way. I think depending on where you are in the country when you see this play, mm-hmm. your reaction to it would be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it it seemed you know kind of like oh yeah, this is kind of ten years ago. But I'm sure for other communities it's very Absolutely. Up or even other people in the Belfry's audience. Yeah. Well, there's that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, you know when I said parts of it were funny. Parts of it were funny. Parts of it were very insightful. There's a scene where she goes to ceremony. She's never been to ceremony for Mm -hmm. the first time. And, uh, you know, I kind of wanted more from that scene. There are certainly scenes that I wanted more from Mm -hmm. and other scenes that I wanted less from. Right. Um, But uh, I thought it was interesting. It was directed by Fallon Johnson, who wrote it as well. Uh, So, you know, that I I felt the direction was very good. I liked the staging of it, of how they moved the set around, how Mm -hmm. they used the set. Uh, the actual set design by Tamara Marie Kushran was very lovely, as was Alan Brody's lighting. It was almost like a, a big uh, wall cabinet that you could see through and all these objects scattered around. Yeah, like those, you know, those curio, yeah, the curio cabinets cabinet. that you put yeah. knickknacks in, but imagine it as a whole backdrop for yeah, stage. It was yeah, really cool. Yeah, I thought that was quite good. And the chemistry as well. I thought um, the actress who played Salt Baby, Dakota Ray Hebert, especially her chemistry with the character, the actor uh, Timothy Hill who played her father, hmm. was really lovely. Those, those see the father moments. Timothy Hill. I wanted to see more of yeah. him. Way more of him on stage. I also went to the Clean House, which was down at Langham Court, uh, Sarah Rule's play. Very, very clever uh, playwright. Uh, very good with dialogue and character. This was a Pulitzer Prize nominee, Clean House. And, you know, I got to say, I'm so impressed with Langport these days. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, considering when I started going to Langport, the kind of shows they're doing and the kind of shows they're doing now, like, it just seems night and day. It was such a fresh show. Uh, and it made me wonder, like, how come nobody else in town hasn't mounted this play yet? Because it's really great. Clean House, in a nutshell, uh, a woman, a doctor, she hires uh, an international maid to come and live in her home and clean her house for her. The international maid from Brazil uh, doesn't like cleaning, doesn't want to be a maid. She wants to be a stand-up comedian instead. <laughs> Throughout the show, she keeps telling jokes to the audience in Portuguese (laughs) and we don't get the translations of it which is kind of great and then the doctor's sister who's leading sort of uh, empty nest somewhat pointless home based existent uh, is an obsessive cleaner she cleans her own house obsessively and she finishes early in the day and she has nothing else to do so she offers to trade off cleaning duties with the maid so the maid can focus on her own life and the sister takes over cleaning and you would think that was the setup for the entire story. It would be sort of a slamming doors kind of farce where, oh, sister's coming home, got to hide the cleaning stuff. Oh, here, take this iron, you know, that kind of thing. But then it takes a totally different turn where the doctor's husband turns out he's having an affair with, he's a surgeon, he's having an affair with one of his patients. And then um, it goes in this total other direction where it becomes almost this exploration of magical realism of what this affair is about. And the beauty of Sarah Rule's plays, I think, lies in the fact that she writes such strong female characters and the solutions they find to situations are not what typically male playwrights would find. Uh, instead of conflict, we get uh, you know emotional explorations of other options for these issues. We don't get arguments. We get uh, these sort of uh, fanciful conversations about what directions these could go in you know uh, it was very good it was so good i really enjoyed it good performances all the way around uh some langham regulars Fran patterson she's always quite funny uh some new people showing up as well uh the lead the lead character uh the maid uh danny parkinson it was her debut and she was so good on stage very natural and again very good with the portuguese as well mm-hmm. 
And once again at Langham, an amazing set. Mm. Like the set, uh, who's the set designer? Jason Dixie. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. Also the director and Sean Thompson. Uh, another fantastic set on a very small space where you want to talk about magical realism. What they do with this set. <laughs> I, I can't even, like you would talk about spoilers. The spoilers are what happens with this set. Like it looks <laughs> like a living room and it becomes so much more. So I, I can't recommend yeah. Greenhouse enough. Uh, it runs till May 5th down at Langham Court. It's very good. Awesome. Yeah, uh, some art shows. Oh, yeah, so yeah. art. Let's talk about art as well. So the other thing I went to this week, I went to the two student-based art shows, uh, one by Camosa College. Uh, they're graduating visual arts class. Uh, the show is called On the Cusp. And I also went to the uh, UVix Visual Arts Department graduation show called Good Grief. Uh, it's hard to compare the two shows, uh, UVic's program is four years. Camosun College, I believe, is only two years. Uh, UVic's uh, show has about 40 artists. Uh, Camosun College has about 20 artists. Uh, the work in both ranges from, you know, okay to quite surprisingly and some incredibly engaging stuff. Um, the differences are that uh, Visual Arts Department at UVic, they've got this beautiful building that they just fill with art. They've got, mm. you know, the Visual Arts building is a standalone building and every room is just full of stuff and you can spend, you know, a good hour walking around seeing all these pieces. Uh, whereas uh, Visual Arts Department at, at Camosun, uh, you know, they're in the bottom of the Young Building, which is mm -hmm. not an attractive space. And <laughs> so they've got a space down on Fort Street. They've rented uh, the old Staples, yeah. uh, the empty storefront that's been okay. empty for so long on Fort Street across from Russell Books and they've set up in there. And even though they have so many fewer artists and so fewer pieces, their foot tracker traffic was enormous. I was mm -hmm. in there on Sunday, and people were just coming in because it was like, oh, an art show. Let's go in and see it. Uh, whereas yeah. up at UVic, like, it's hard to get people to, to come from the other side of the campus yeah. over the visual arts part mm. to see a bigger, arguably and I mentioned show. partly because that's a prominent space that's been empty for so long. There are probably yeah. just a bunch of people who are like, looky loose. Yeah. yeah. Which is exactly what I did. It's like, <laughs> I want to see the show, but I want to see the space too because mm. I'd forgotten how big it was. This There's huge, a second floor. Yeah. There's an escalator that goes downstairs. I wanted to see like uh, a roller derby happening downstairs. It's a huge <laughs> floor. Why not? Like use these spaces in creative fashions. Yeah. And I mean, that's an obvious segue to some of the news that's going on this week as well. It uh, came out that uh, Visa, the Vancouver Island School of Art in Quarter Street Village, uh, they've been given the old hee-ho by uh, School District 61. They've got to give up their space now, which they've been renting for 14 years. Quite a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And nice honestly, space. I didn't realize that it was still a school district space. I thought they had actually just yeah, taken I the kinda, building over. Well, I mean, especially with that rad paint job they did on it. Like, mm -hmm. those, the kids who are going mm -hmm. to that school are going to have, like, the awesomest mm -hmm. school ever. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, I kind of had forgotten that that belonged to the school district. I think as we all mm -hmm. did, yeah. yeah. So, and then now, so because of the... You know, the redistribution of students and the smaller class spaces and the increase in student population, school districts scrambling and pulling Taking back, back all their for spaces. spaces yeah. Yeah. So how long do they have? They've got till the end of the summer, apparently, to find a new okay. space, end of August. So Yeah, what kaleidoscope's sense. probably concerned, too. Well, there's kaleidoscope, there's the Victoria College of Art mm -hmm. down in Oak Bay as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it just shows the scramble for art space in the city. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Visa, so they've got a very, you know, they've got a set program. They've got a lot of people who've been going to their classes for all this time. They're well-known in the community. Uh, where are they going to go? Yeah, I think the number uh, in the CBC interview was like 2,000 students. Which really yep. surprised well, me. But yeah. I guess over the course of 14 years, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, and speaking of that, an art space, uh, we talked a little bit last time about the uh, the proposed downtown Victoria Arts Hub and the old courthouse building. 
mm-hmm. in Bastion Square. Uh, so yeah, I did a little bit of interviewing about that and chatting with people about that. So just to recap, that's provincially owned building. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's being proposed as an artist's space hub. Yeah. Hub. Yeah, so I guess it was an initiative by the DVBA, mm-hmm. um, the city, and the Bastion Square Revitalization Association. Mm-hmm. They kind of got their heads together and thought, okay, what can we what can we use the space for? I think they'd heard quite a bit maybe in the city planning process. You know, we I remember talking to quite a few people a couple of years ago or a year ago about losing arts venues. You know, yeah. at the time, Theater Scam was looking for a new place. Right. Paper Street had just lost their space. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's an amazing building. Like it's, it's beautiful. And has it been building. vacant since Maritime Museum? That's the out? impression that everyone I, so. I spoke to was under, that the Maritime Museum left and the doors were closed because it wasn't a suitable. It needed a lot of work, mm-hmm. but uh, no work had, I don't think any work got done. Uh, but, you know, everyone I spoke to in uh, the arts community was cautiously optimistic about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, a lot of support. Um, I spoke with Ian Case, and he's the director of ceremonies in the Farquhar Auditorium up at UVic, and he's been a professional artist in town since 1991. Yeah, he described himself as cautiously optimistic and, you know, almost surprised given... Well, how did he describe it? He said, I've been through a lot of sticky dot exercises. <laughs> I spoke with uh, Matt Payne at Theatre Scam, and he was supportive of the idea, although... Given their needs now, uh, they might not even use the space. Even if Theater Scam doesn't end up in that space and um, and it ends up with, uh, you know, I don't know, four other companies or six other companies, uh, I think that's, uh, you know, it has a lot of potential um, to put, uh, put the arts in a prominent downtown location. And, um, you know, we've seen from looking at hubs in other cities what it does when you get arts organizations sharing a building there's just more uh synergy and collaboration and um and people connect more on a regular basis and and um and that kind of stuff uh bleeds into the arts so so for sure we're, at, we're I'm I'm completely supportive of it whether it's whether it involves us or not yeah, and I mean, that was kind of the sentiment that was echoed by everyone I spoke yeah. with. So I also spoke with Mercedes Batiste Benet. She's the artistic director at Puente Theatre. She pointed out, like, they're a relative, they've been around a long time. Like, this is their 30th year, I think. Mm. Um, but they're a small company. Um, and she made a really good point about smaller arts organizations and the need for, and this is part of the proposal, is to have, like, kind of not have an arts an existing arts group go in and manage it to create its own nonprofit organization and sort of the importance of having that kind of blank slate as a hub and possibly a small venue more than anything i think to have a, a place that's shared by the community as opposed to i'm renting a specific space because what has happened a few times with our shows is because we rent either the metro or the belfry or you know this the blue bridge the roxy then people think that it's their show. So I've had actual reviews on the, on the Globe and Mail that it, our company doesn't even get mentioned. Once, when we're using those spaces, then we kind of get forgotten a little bit. Because there are so many theater companies in town, so many. I think I heard something like over 150 or something like that, which I think is insane, but really great. And, but where are all these companies creating? 
Where are they communicating? We don't even know who these people are. We don't know each other because there's very few spaces. So if we could have a place where we could all, again, create, meet, share ideas, I think it would be so beneficial for the community at large, for Victoria. You know, it, it would just make us feel more creative. And that came up a lot in conversations, just this idea, like the, the venue question, you know, that'd be, the venue would be nice. And I think that that's probably going to be, and we were kind of talking about this before, that's going to be the hardest part piece of the puzzle because Mm -hmm. like, yeah, Melanie, you, you saw the, you were looking at the plans as well. They're proposing performance and rehearsal space on the top floor, which is where the courthouse Mm -hmm. is. There's, you know, issues with having a performance space on the top floor (laughs) for accessibility, other reasons. If anyone remembers being in the Maritime Museum, it's that old cage elevator where you go in, you you shut the door, and it's rattle, rattle, rattle all the way up, Mm -hmm. or the twisties, twisties staircase that gets you all the way up to the top. Yeah, and that's that's another thing, because I emailed Ian uh, Peters at the DVBA, like, just asking a couple questions and, you know, asking about the heritage preservation aspect, and he just, he said, you know, that's something that we're going to have to work through Mm -hmm. as this ball keeps rolling, but... I almost feel like a big focus and something that a lot of the arts groups that I spoke with were excited about was more just that collaborative, like office space Mm -hmm. and a boardroom. And maybe, you know, Ian Case mentioned, like, maybe you have like consultants on hand to help you write grants or to, you Mm -hmm. know, help you do some marketing. Sharing some resources, mentorship from Mm -hmm. from more established companies working with newer ones. Yeah, the potential for collaboration is great. And after hearing, you know, those two people talk, it's I feel more excited about it mm-hmm. than I had thought of before because I wasn't thinking of that perspective. Yeah, and I wasn't either. And, like, I was pretty put off by that first meeting. And, frankly, I kind of, like, in my head just kind of wrote it off after that. But after talking to people in the community, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't help but get a little excited about it because yeah. they were excited about it. Granted, there are lots of voices missing here. There were quite a few people involved in the process. There were people that weren't involved in the process. Mm-hmm. I pretty much spoke with theater folks because that's my you know bias showing like the people that I thought to reach out to I'm sure there are other folks in the arts community who aren't so wild about the idea you know uh, Matt had mentioned that maybe it's not the best place for theater scan they're a theater school now like pick up and drop off of your kids sure Uh, my my concern is just yeah like how suitable is the space it's a heritage space How much are people going to be allowed to make changes if you want to put in a lighting grid? Are you going to be allowed to drill into the ceiling? Will the ceiling, ceiling even take any weight? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're using it as an exhibit space in the visual arts community, is it suitable for that? Loading bay, getting things in and out mm-hmm. in the middle of the day or night, whenever down there is always kind of tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, bringing in audiences. And this, I mean, it, at least how it's come about, and, and it's amazing to hear that the community is cautiously optimistic well the people say, i talked to anyway the right? people like, that you spoke to there's other people i'm yeah. sure but the context that got it driving was really bastion square focus mm-hmm. revitalization focus it's you know it's being spearheaded from a community development perspective which isn't a bad thing but it's finding a use for that building as opposed to finding a suitable space for the arts community That's yeah the piece that came yeah first. that was and that was sort of my, part of my hesitation about it too was it was like the arts was almost an afterthought mm-hmm. it felt like mm-hmm. anyway but the the company that they hired, the consulting firm, has a really great reputation in terms of like arts-focused projects. Uh, you know, both Matt and Ian spoke very highly of the consultants that they engaged with. So, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Uh, there's a design, share it. Did I say it right? Yep. Charette. Oh, Charette. Share it. Meeting. Yes. Uh, meeting. Meeting. Design <laughs> meeting on Wednesday. So this week, um, that they're inviting the arts community to, and, uh, that also includes a tour of the building, which will be, you know, uh, I think that the, the figure that I heard a couple times bandied about is it's going to cost about $12 million just to make it stop leaking. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I asked uh, Ian Case up Evic for his thoughts on what is happening now and what needs to happen next. I expect that uh, it's really a matter of uh, a further development of the business plan and then uh, and then probably some for- form of uh, financial commitment from the city or the CRD, um, probably the city, um, and looking at leveraging. And I, I would expect that the city is probably having fairly significant discussions with the province. I mean, the bonus about that building is that it's a significant heritage building. um, And the province is already spending a fair chunk of change keeping keeping it from falling down. You know, it'll really depend on what what happens, uh, you know, whether or not the province decides to sell it back to the community or whether they want to maintain their their ownership of the space but then make a contribution towards the the development of it so it, it's really a bit up in the air right now but i think um i think there's probably some backroom discussions that are going to happen before the arts community gets really sort of included in the discussion it's not going to be a short-term solution i'll tell you that it's mm-hmm. not going to help out visa no. To be open no. At the end of August, right? But they're an <laughs> ideal person. Like, if they as an organization could slide in there and say, okay, great, we'll take two floors for our art school. But, you know, how many years away are we talking about? It's a long yeah. time for this process. I mean, just to, like, I imagine it'll take at least a year just to get it. Well, just to get it going. Yeah. And then if there's renovations Even that are needed. Even scoping out what the work will be required, yeah. And let's not forget, this is one of the most famously haunted buildings <laughs> in the province. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Yeah. Like, this is a seriously yeah. haunted building. So if arts groups are going to go in there, they've got to go in knowing that they're going in. And the stories I have heard is that the ghosts in that building can be quite aggressive. Mm-hmm. So they've got to like go the in. the ghosts of people who've been hanged? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You think about the heritage there. of the building, you know? <laughs> you think about we did a territorial <laughs> welcome Court off the house. top. You talk about some area that needs some cleansing. Mm-hmm. Like that yeah. space, it's got some serious history mm-hmm. to it. So people have to go in in the know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll... We'll keep uh, keep following the story. Mm-hmm. What's next? What's next? What is next? Um... I'm going to Palm Springs for my 40th birthday. Yeah. So, you know, all that art stuff is up to you guys. I'll be in recovery mode. <laughs> well, let's wrap this one up then. And uh, there's plenty to talk about coming up in the next episode. Uh, we're going to go see some more things. I'm going to go see Nine to Five uh, with VOS's new musical. Yeah, like building an entire musical on a single Dolly song. How about that? I'm kind of sad that you aren't going to that, Sarah. (laughs) Jumped out of bed and stomped to the kitchen. Pulled myself a couple foundation. Maybe the next episode you could just perform it for us. Uh, What else is coming up? Uh, Theater in Kong News got their production. Yeah, Uh, I'm going to try and go to that next week. Paper Street Theater's Improv Festival uh, runs till the 28th, and there's a local cabaret tomorrow night for everybody's favorite local artists um, on Tuesday, April 24th. And then they've got people in from Finland and from Sweden and uh, from Seattle doing just amazing, innovative, improvised work throughout throughout the week. And Paper Street, of course, is playing a big role in that. Um, In... uh, 
little vignettes that they're doing each night as well as some of their infamous apparently late night shows mm-hmm. so that's running till the 28th the other thing we'll have <laughs> coming up in the next episode we're going to talk to heather Lindsay about uno fest and they've got a special indigenous focus this year so we're going to get some uh, interview from her that'll be in the next episode as well can we wish materialize something here oh in the spirit, yeah okay so in the spirit of all the incredible 90s acts coming to victoria i mother earth i mother earth Finger 11, Finger Macy 11, Gray. Macy Gray. We had the Sloan Proclaimers. Proclaimers yes. Broken Social Scene. Got Broken Social Yeah, I saw what? that. Yeah. Why didn't you even hear They're coming that. in August. Yeah. Seriously. Let's all have a, we'll a wish again. materialization. For Rifflandia. For Rifflandia, but Lauren Hill, who's playing the night before in Vancouver... Comes for Saturday night. Decides she would like to have a lovely ferry boat ride <laughs> over to the island. Nice. I interviewed the Proclaimers last time they were in town. Uh, and that was, if people remember, that was when uh, there was the version of Folk Fest that was happening out at Royal Roads. And uh, their show actually got rained out. There was so much rain, the show got canceled. Oh. Uh, so wow. like so they're total... due to have a rockin' show here. <laughs> they're on their Wii. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good Proclaimer show. Okay, does anyone know any other Proclaimer songs? Uh, sure, Letter from America. Okay. Uh, I, I actually watched, you want to talk Proclaimers, there's a really good <laughs> musical, they did a jukebox musical of the Proclaimers music called Sunshine on Leith, and uh, it's on Netflix, not that I'm pitching Netflix, uh, but you can watch it, and it's they, what, it's like a classic jukebox musical, they took all their songs, they wrapped a narrative around it, and it's worked surprisingly well. Uh, you know, even if you don't know anything more than 500 miles, 500 miles, 5,000 miles, how many miles is it? 500 miles? 500 miles. Um, it's my karaoke go-to song. Yeah. And Sunshine Only Thing. Like, it's a really good musical, actually. It's a good intro to the Proclaimers. Huh. Yeah. Good. Uh, you can watch it to prepare for the concert. Anyway. <laughs> also happening this weekend that I will be going to, not I Mother Earth, but on Friday night, um, it's in Trumpet Theatre's Get Out Cabaret. Oh. And that's... Uh, leading into, uh, as a preview, if you will, a bit of a program launch for their Outstages Festival in mm. June, nice. which is one of Canada's very few queer art festivals. Um, but the Get Out Cabaret is all local acts. And there's, I, I think Intrepid does two um, of these cabarets a year and kind of book in the festival with it. This is their spring one, and it's meant to give, you know, platform and stage for a lot of uh, queer artists who who don't necessarily have a lot of opportunities to bring their work, their their performance theater, uh, to broader audiences, and so there's poetry and opera and drag and dance and and just a huge range of local art. Uh, that's Friday night at the Metro, um, this Friday, April twenty seventh. And uh, Kelly Hobson and Alex Wasenko's new piece yes. is on Saturday. Is that? No, it's the following Friday. Oh, okay. It's May May fourth at the Metro as well. And I, of course, I'm going to Infinity War Thursday night, the new uh, Avengers movie, which I bought tickets for like weeks ago. So I'm going to be there on opening night for that. Yeah. A little bit of geek. Nerd. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I just spent my weekend getting all caught up in. The is that Avengers even movies. is that even considered nerdy anymore though? Because like no, that'll be mainstream. that'll be sold out. Like you bought tickets weeks ago, and so did a bunch of other people. I know. So, I know. It's. Not, I think it's, we need to rethink our definition nerdy. of nerd. What is nerdy yeah. then? I don't know. That's a whole other So if people want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at checktheprogramyyj at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Check the Program. Yeah, and Twitter at Check the Program. And uh, yeah, please do. If you have anything to share with us, please get in touch. 
Uh, we've really been pleased and uh, surprised and I'll say flattered by the feedback we've been getting. Uh, people so far have really been enjoying the podcast, which is great because this is only number three. Mm-hmm. So fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Stick um, with us. Keep your love and hate mail coming. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And if there's things you want to hear on the show, if you want to be on the show, get in touch uh, and we'll, uh, we'll see what we can do. So uh, for this episode, I'm John Trumpel. I'm Amanda Farrell Lowe. Sarah Petrescu. And I'm Melanie Trump Cooper. And remember to check the program. Check.